Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. At SLRC, they understand your dream to move. Moving up, moving on, moving your body, moving mountains. SLRC can help you find the focus to define your finish line. As a top 10 run shop in America, they use their 25 years of experience to provide custom shoe fit analysis and offer a premium assortment of footwear and workout essentials. Locally owned, locally operated. SLRC is movement inspired. Visit saltlakerunning.com to schedule your shoe fitting today. Host of Eden Season 2, Episode 9, Ancient History. Last time on Host of Eden Season 2, Marion and her team were almost killed by an explosion in the gun store. Now everyone is back at Covenant Headquarters, again gathered around the kitchen table. Johnny Sims is there, and he's being questioned about what he knows regarding the, the Bell's Sphere. Well, I can tell you it was found in a field in 1974 by the Belts family. It seemed to be perfectly round, and it would follow members of the family around the room. They had video of it. Dr. Marion asked, you you had the sphere for years. Were you able to discover anything? Unfortunately, not much, Johnny Sims says. It's of some unknown alloy. And we're never able to quite see what was inside. None of our instruments were able to allow us to get any idea of what what it was made of. Then Colby asked, wait, you had this thing for decades and you still have no idea what it does or where it came from? Johnny Sims is a little bit perturbed by the insinuation. I am a scientist, young lady. I don't get to decide how long it takes to discover the truth. Marion signals to Colby to back off. Well, you must have some theories, Mason asks. Why, yes, Johnny Sims says. As a matter of fact, I do. Over the past few years, I've been pursuing a theory that the sphere may actually have come from the Egyptians. Marion and Mason perk up because they believe that the necklace that their suspect is using also comes from early Egypt. Johnny Sims grabs Marion's laptop and pulls up some ancient Egyptian paintings on the walls of the tombs. Here, he says, look at this. This headdress found on the walls of several burial tombs. Look, doesn't that look like the sphere? And then look here on this one. 
This looks like the Ark of the Covenant with some type of sphere sticking out of the top. As if the sphere is placed on top of that. Wait a minute, Marion demands. That looks exactly like the Ark. What were the Egyptians doing with the Genesis device? Then Johnny Sim says, no, no, no. The real question is, what were the Israelites doing with the Ark? It was clearly made by the Egyptians, my dear. I mean, just look at it. And these wall paintings all but prove it. None of that makes any sense, Marion says. Johnny Sims then continues, I know, I know. That is why I've been asking to see the scrolls of Akhenaten. But so far, no one is allowed to see them. Marion and Mason again look totally confused. You know, the scrolls of Akhenaten were recently discovered, but no one outside of Egypt has been allowed to see them. There's a rumor going around that these scrolls speak of a sphere being combined with the Ark, creating some strange new power source. We've got to go and see those scrolls, Mason says. Let's see if we can get our friend in the White House to pull some strings. They all agree and begin to make preparations to leave for Egypt. A few days later, we find the group gathered around a work table with a curator in the back room of the Grand Egyptian Museum. They're looking at the scrolls of Akhenaten. These scrolls appear to be some form of instructions. They seem to be showing how to place something called the Staff of Akhenaten into the top of the Ark, then place the sphere on the top of the staff. When this is accomplished, some type of power source comes down from the heavens. Look at this, Marion says. What is that power or energy coming down? Do you think they stole the ark and used it for their own purposes? Johnny Sims is there and he says, I've already told you that the ark was most likely made by the Egyptians. Mason then looking at the scrolls, look here, inside the power source. It almost looks like faces coming down through the device. Oh my goodness, Marion says, look at that. Do you think that they were bringing down their own alien kind into the hosts? Are they another alien race after these same hosts? Is that what they're after? The curator who is there with them showing them the scroll says, That's almost exactly what our head curator said this morning. I had no idea what he was talking about. Marion looks up at him and is confused. Wait, your head curator was looking at these this morning? Was he acting strange at all? Well, now that you mention it, the curator says, he was acting very strange. It was like he didn't even know me. Then Mason says urgently, you need to take us to your head curator's office right now. They rush up to his office, open the door, and rush inside. On the ground is the body of a stranger with no one else inside. Mason then looks at the curator. What else did he say about the scrolls? The curator responds, he read from the scrolls as if it was in his own language. He said that there was a hidden chamber inside the tomb of King Tut. Inside that chamber, they would find the staff. The group has immediately been rushed to the site of King Tut's tomb. Them and a large fleet of vehicles pull up just as our suspect and his band are leaving the tomb. 
Soldiers get out of the vehicles, draw their weapons in a defensive posture. Drop your weapons, Mason demands. There's no way out. Then Marion notices something. What is that? She points to a staff that their suspect is holding. It is completely plated in gold and clearly looks like something from ancient Egypt. About four inches from the top, there's some type of bluish glow that appears to be getting brighter every second. Put down the staff, Mason demands, and drop your weapons or we will open fire. Just as he finishes his sentence, the suspect pounds the base of the staff into the ground, sending a shockwave in the direction of the barricade. The windows of all the vehicles shatter and several of the vehicles are knocked on their sides. Mason gives the order to open fire, but none of their weapons are working. Ramsey's band also tries to open fire, but their weapons are not working either. Marion notices that the glow in the staff has now diminished. Look, she says, the staff, it must have to recharge or something. I don't think he can do that again, at least not right away. Mason signals to the team that they are to advance in order to capture the band. They begin to leave the security of their vehicles and charge the suspect. Mason, Johnny, and Colby advance as well. As the first wave of soldiers reach the position of the suspects, they engage in hand-to-hand combat. It becomes very clear that the suspect and his team have been well-trained and they're more capable than the soldiers. They disable the first wave rather quickly. Johnny realizes that he's going to be outmatched and decides to hold back. Marion notices that the light on the staff is starting to glow again. Be careful, be careful, she yells. The staff, it's recharging. Mason and Colby begin to attack several members of the group while other soldiers arrive as well. At first, the band is hesitant to engage Colby, seeing that he's just a 10-year-old girl. Colby takes advantage of the distraction by taking one out with a blow to the throat and then sweeps the leg of another, knocking him to the ground. Colby jumps on top of him, having grabbed one of the weapons, and slams the butt of the gun into the fallen suspect's face, knocking him unconscious. Their leader, seeing that his band is starting to be overpowered, turns and starts to try to escape on foot. He's getting away, Marion yells. Mason is still occupied by one of the suspects, so it's up to Colby to try and stop him. He tries to pursue on foot, but quickly realizes that his little 10-year-old legs are not going to be able to keep up. He starts to slow down and give up. Just then, a vehicle pulls up next to him. It's Johnny driving one of the vehicles. Need a ride, he says. Colby jumps on the running board of the vehicle, and Johnny hits the gas in the direction of the suspect. As the vehicle gets close enough to the suspect, Colby launches himself into the air and onto the back of the suspect. The impact causes them both to crash to the ground, causing a cloud of dust to go into the air. As they both begin to recover, Colby notices that the staff is sitting next to him on the ground. He grabs it and holds it out towards the suspect. It's heavy, and his small frame is having a hard time wielding it as a weapon. The suspect notices that Colby is struggling and begins to engage him. Little Colby manages to withstand these attempts, but he knows it's only a matter of time before he is overcome. Then he notices the blue glowing object in the staff. It's really glowing brightly now. So just guessing on how the staff works, he slams the end into the ground, hoping that it would emit a shockwave. But unfortunately, nothing happens. 
The suspect smiles, grabs the staff, and uses it to knock Colby to the ground. The suspect looks up and sees that Mason has overcome the rest of his band and is running in their direction. John and Marion are now also heading towards them in a vehicle. All of a sudden, the suspect stops running and turns in their direction and starts to run towards them. Marion yells, the staff, it must be recharged. Get out of the way. But it's too late. The suspect slams the end of the staff into the ground, sending a shockwave in all directions. Mason is sent flying into the air. Colby, who's still laying on the ground, manages to stay safe by hunkering down and protecting his head. As the shockwave hits the vehicle carrying Johnny and Marion, it is blown backwards into the air, crashing down on its rooftop. Marion is heard screaming. As the dust clears, Mason and Colby rush back to the upside-down vehicle to rescue Johnny and Marion. Fortunately, they are safe. As they gather themselves, they look in the direction of their suspect, but he is nowhere to be seen. We have to get back to the compound. He has the staff and the sphere. If he manages to get them to the Ark, the hosts of Eden may be lost forever. Next time on Hosts of Eden Season 2, Covenant returns to headquarters and begins to wait for their suspect to make an attempt to acquire the Genesis device. What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com.